So try not to confuse you with a little stuff from Samuel here. Um, but this is going to be a very pivotal text for us today as we continue to look in Luke. Um, if you want to hold your finger there on 1 Samuel chapter 21 um, and flip over back to Luke chapter 6, uh, we'll be going through that again today as usual. All right. <clears throat> it's always fun to transition from drums to preaching. Um, so I'm going to do my best here. Ready? <laughs> um, Facebook is a fantastic and overused tool for preachers. Um, there are, it's such a window for us into normal life, right? Um, we talked about clean versus unclean and then holy and holy versus secular last week. Um, I'm locked in an office all week, all right? Monday, 12 to 5, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, like 10 to 10. And then Friday, I'm home. Uh, Saturday, I'm home. Uh, Sunday, I'm here. And that's all Jesus time, right? Um, so for me and for Matt, it's a window into the secular world. Uh, not that our professions are necessarily holy, uh, but we are not secular. <laughs> um, so for that, we get to see a lot of just different views, both from you guys and for people that don't go to church at all or people that go to other churches. Um, for me, I've got a wide variety. I don't know. I don't look at your friends. But I mean, I've got uh, lots of former students that are now in college. I've got um, youth still that are younger from FCA. I have adults. I have grandparents. I have family. And so we get a very diverse, broad picture. And a couple resounding questions that people seem to be asking is, who is Jesus? They may not ask it that specific way, but they want to understand or think they understand exactly who Jesus is. Is. And another question that seems to be a resounding gong in these times is, what is religion for? Where does religion fit into our personal lives? And certainly, where does religion fit into our culture, particularly our government? Um, those are some resounding questions. And so there are lots of questions about religion. And so in the 90s, we had this great idea as the church to say that we're no longer religious. All right, so I'm coming out of, uh, what, middle school heading into the early 2000s into high school and the church is making its you know contemporary christian music switch during all that time um, i've got a lot of people in my former church who thought at the time that you know we were satanists because we had strings on our instruments um, that made a lot of noise and i was the bass player so i was particularly loved um, as i make them shake so we got to go through that and there was a big change that we said we're no longer religious it's all about the relationship we're relational Christians. We are building bridges. We're doing all of that. And all that is good in essence, but we can't get away from the fact that Christianity is still the largest religion in the world. Uh, we're getting caught up to by the Muslims. Um, Islam is uh, coming on very, very, very strong, particularly on the other side of the world. But Christianity is a religion. It's a religion that's very old. And it's, it goes even back to Judaism. We come out of that, understanding it correctly. So the question of where does religion fit um, isn't probably the best place to start, but it needs to be asked. And if people who are not in the church are trying to figure out this question, we should probably have some sort of answer. So if somebody came to you and said, what do you think religion is, how would you answer? Is it just a system of beliefs? Is it just something that you uh, kind of ascribe to that just kind of sits there and helps sort of formulate your worldview? 
At what point does religion become something that is going to be uh, something that is steadfast, is a structural and an integral part of your worldview? Do you have a Christian worldview or do you just have a worldview? Where does religion fit into this? And how do we as a church <laughs> get away from that 90s and early 2000s step of saying we're not religious, we're relational? Um, no, we have a religion. And how does religion then fit with Jesus? What did Jesus do with religion? Because if the two questions that we keep seeing in different methods, different ways, um, and through different means is going to be who is Jesus and what is religion, the good question to ask is what did Jesus do with religion? And the synoptic uh, gospel writers, so everybody but John, do a fantastic job in cataloging for us Jesus' interactions with the religious people of the day. So if we're going to try to answer the question of how does Jesus fit with religion and how does he handle religion, we need to make uh, a look at him, take a look at him. So if we're going to start here in Luke, um, let's step first behind the religion of Christianity. Uh, it has our presuppositions written into it, all of our knowledge of history, Rome, all of that. We're going to step behind that and just start with Jesus. If, if our Religion is founded on Jesus, and we want to see what he did with it. Let's start with him particularly. So who is Jesus? Let's look at what he does. Now, he makes four very striking claims over and against the religious leaders of the day in Luke chapter 6. He's already made some, and we saw in verse five, in chapter 5. He makes four striking claims in chapter 6 over and against the religious leaders of the day. What does he have to say? So let's look in Luke chapter 6. It says, on a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. And then he told them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Father, as we dive into your word today. I ask that you break our hearts, Father, that you humble us. Father, that when we are reading these accounts between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, that we don't find ourselves on the side of being filled with rage. Pointless, endless rage. But Father, that we take the words that you have for us and when we submit to them, Father, that we humble ourselves and recognize you as Lord. And that, Father, as Lord, that requires some sort of response. We cannot just call you Lord and teacher and rabbi and savior without having some sort of response. 
So the first thing I want you guys to see today, Jesus claimed to be the Lord of their religion. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus claims to be the Lord of their religion. This passage reaches back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, 1 through 6 that we read. It also includes chapter 22, 9 through 10. There's a little bit more um, involved in that in 1 Samuel. But what's happening here is Jesus and his disciples are, are traveling, and it happens to be a Sabbath. Again, Luke, while being incredibly detailed, does not want to um, give a chronological, per se, account of what's happening. He's simply trying to establish who Jesus is. So Luke is writing to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And what he wants to do, because the Greeks are really like man, uh, the figure of man, um, just not just men and women altogether, but particularly men. That's where we get the you know, naked Olympics, all that jazz. That's them. So Luke is writing to them, trying to establish the fact that Jesus was the perfect Man, if they were concerned about uh, fitness, if they were concerned about sculpting of the man, of which I'm not a fine specimen, um, Jesus is the perfect man, and that's what he is trying to communicate to them. So he wants to just talk about overall character stuff. So these, this is a, a, a pattern for Jesus. All of these things, back in chapter 5, it was a pattern. As they were pressing in on him, one of those days when he was teaching, after this, then this, it's... It's a pattern of behavior for Jesus. This is establishing character. So on a Sabbath, a random Sabbath, we don't know what Sabbath it was. We don't know what season it was. All we know is that it's a Sabbath, and that's what matters. He's setting up the scene with the information that we simply need. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain. So what we're going to find here is that Jesus makes his first striking claim. His first striking claim happens in verse 5, and we see very explicitly what he was doing, what the Sabbath is for, um, and who Jesus says that he is to the religious leaders of the day. But first, let's talk about what's going on. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 24 through 25, you see that if you are passing through a, a grain field or a vineyard, you're allowed to take from the field, you're allowed to take from the vineyard grapes, uh, wheat, and consume as much as you like. But you're only supposed to take what you need or even maybe want i mean you can eat whatever whatever you can eat you can have you're just not supposed to take any with you so if you start filling your bag up with grapes for later down the road that's that's not okay if you just eat as you're going because you're hungry that's fine there's there's nothing wrong with that uh, deuteronomy the law of god says that that is okay it's acceptable behavior so what's going on here is that the pharisees didn't have a problem with what the disciples were doing it's more of a win they don't really care that it's not stealing. You're not stealing grain. Um, now, having said that, don't go to Meyer and just start grazing, okay? Um, that's not what we're saying here. Um, but it's not what they were doing. A human survival takes over and takes precedence over property. It's not a, I'm going to defend every aspect of my land. If you guys are hungry, the hospitality side fits into this. I want to feed you. You can take of my land. But stealing would be taking more than you need, very similar to what would happen in the desert, right? You take as much manna as you need. If you take too much, it'll spoil and go rancid. Same with the quail. So human survivor, survival was the priority over property. And the Pharisees didn't have a problem with what they were doing, but when? They were defending the Sabbath. It was a Sabbath day that they did this. So what's important about the Sabbath? 
for us Gentiles and non-Jews. What does that mean? Well, it's hard to fault the Pharisees, at least at this point. Um, maybe a little bit later it gets a little more explicit what their problem is, but it's hard to fault the Pharisees to a degree on defending the Sabbath. And for us, our Sabbath is Sunday. It's when we gather. It's when we come to hear God's word. It's when we should at least rest some from what we do. And for us, it, I mean, it wouldn't be as big a deal in America to have church on Saturday night, right? It wouldn't be as big a deal. It wouldn't be as big a deal to have church on Sunday evening. In fact, Refuge City, some of our friends, they have service on Sunday evenings. It's still Sunday. It's still the Sabbath. But, I mean, typically in America, it's going to be Sunday morning, right? That's what we do. That way we can make it home before football. Um, at least that's what I was always told. <laughs> so, um, Sunday morning is kind of our time. Now, for the Pharisees, it wasn't just a time. It wasn't acceptable to do it the night before. It wasn't acceptable to do it in the evening. It, it was all day. And it is the Sabbath. There's one. You don't get to kind of move it around. Now for, for Matt and I, we typically kind of work more on Sunday. Um, so this isn't necessarily a Sabbath for me. I try to take Friday and Saturday for those, uh, for those things. So we kind of can move around our Sabbath for the Pharisees and for the Jews, really. It was one day, the Sabbath. Now what was important about the Sabbath was not simply the rest. The rest is important, but it's what it stood for. You see, in occupied uh, Israel, with the Romans there, the only thing that really made them super distinctive, other than going to the temple, was the Sabbath. There was one day a week when the Jews and the Gentile world would have a public confession by just not working. They would rest. And to rest while everybody around them, all the Gentiles were working, makes a statement. It's not that they're lazy. It's just that they're making a statement. The, the Greeks knew exactly why they were doing this. The Romans knew exactly why they were doing this. This was a public confession of faith to a Gentile world. And so if the Jews are supposed to have a Sabbath, what do you think the Pharisees are going to do? I mean, the whole point of the Pharisees was for them to force God's hand so that they could obey the law perfectly so that Messiah would be forced to come. That was their whole goal. And so if they're going to do that, they, the, the method that they take is the law's here to make sure that we never cross this line. We're going to make our own line right here. So that if we cross this line, we messed up, but we didn't break the law. So they have a hedge around the law so that you can't even get to breaking that. So if you have to fast one day a week, according to the law, the Pharisees are going to have you fast two days a week. If you break that fast on the second day, it's okay. You didn't break the law yet. And so they would enforce this one to help keep Judaism pure. Seems like an honorable thing, right? Well, we're going to see some of the major problems that Jesus had with that system shortly. So that's what they're trying to do. They're going to draw out implications of the law. They're going to create a hedge around the law. So Jesus is conscious of the law's limits. He knows exactly where the law uh, would have the line. And then we find his response, uh, his remark shows that he's um, not just trying to obey the law, but he's interpreting the law. Now, the Pharisees are the only people that are supposed to interpret the law. In fact, they're really the only ones that could read it, <laughs> let alone that they had it memorized. So if Jesus, in his remark, is not just talking about the law, he's interpreting the law. He's interpreting the force of the law, the intent of the law, and the limits of the law. So let's see what he says again. If you look in chapter 6, Starting in verse 3, Jesus answers him, 
haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any of the priests to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Jesus responds in such a way, <laughs> it's not sinful, all right? But he's saying, surely you know. Come on, guys. You know this. You know this. You should know this. It's not condescending, but it's in a manner that they have to admit that they know the story. Um, his reply particularly, though, is, is interesting. What is he doing? He's appealing to who? Great, 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 great. Great, 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 great. I'm sorry, I'm in chapter three right now. Grandpa, right? Great, 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 grandpa. David, my great, 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 grandpa to the third power. He did this. So he's appealing first to his line of David. Second of all, he's appealing to a king, a representative of the people. Now, what he forces the Pharisees to do is, is just throw them into an absolute dilemma. If the Pharisees are right in what they say, then David and his men are guilty. So the problem, though, is if you look in 1 Samuel, the text does not question David's actions, and neither did the priests at the scene of the crime. So the question then is, is do the officials want to challenge David and a priest of the Old Testament? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to say? Well, David shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. What are the Pharisees going to do? And so Jesus really, I mean, sticks it to them by asking a question that they should know and then forcing them to either say, look, if Jesus is wrong, then David's wrong. But if what David did is acceptable because the priest at the scene didn't have a problem with it, says it's okay, then I guess we have to be okay with what Jesus did. Whoops. I'm going to go over here and take my foot out of my mouth. All right. So Jesus advocates a restricted hierarchical ethic. All right, that's a big word. All right, point here is Jesus is advocating or upholding a restricted, so it has bounds, hierarchical, so there's levels, ethic. In that... David's example is his defense. Ceremonial restrictions of law are given way to human need. What's the point of the ceremony? To glorify God and for man to see God when you cannot see him. If man is dying, you can take the bread. So it's restricted in that not just anybody can go in and take the bread off the altar. Speaking in 1 Samuel but that a representative of the people can come in and change what needs to happen. It's not a lasting change. It doesn't suddenly make anybody be able to come into the Holy of Holies and take the bread. But it simply allows for human survival to trumpet in the moment. So we see then his final response in verse 5 when he makes it explicit. He says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Talk to you guys about how Greek reads. Um, you can cut up the words in Greek, throw them on the floor, and that's a sentence. And it makes sense. It's sometimes. <laughs> um, it, sometimes it's very hard. If you look at the literal translation in the Greek, it says, Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. Now what's significant about that 
It's not that it's jumbled. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. I said, if in Greek, the order doesn't matter except for the first word. The first word is the emphasis of the sentence. Son of Man is not the emphasis. Sabbath is not the emphasis. Lord is. So the key to the argument is the previous Davidic illustration. Since the king is a representative figure, Jesus claims to be the Son of Man and gives himself then a term of representative sense through the contextual linkage. So by looking at what Jesus is appealing to in David, he's claiming that for himself. He's saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am representative of man, Son of Man. I am representative of man concerning the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of that. Does that make sense? Greek's fun. It gets all janky. All right? But you have to look at what he's referring to, and you have to see what is being emphasized. So by calling himself Lord, because it's emphasized, he's saying that I have absolute authority over it. Then he pairs with that son of man, representative of man. When you have those two and then appeal back to David on top of that as a representative of Israel as the king, you've got like a threefold defense for what he is saying. Does that make sense? Okay, sure. Okay, good. All right, we'll keep moving. So Jesus, as this representative, has authority as son of man to evaluate and interpret tradition and law. This is why authority is stressed by the placement of curios, or Lord, in the emphatic position, that first word. Jesus argues that he is an authoritative representative of the new way. He was called Jesus, the new way. And that he has authority over the understanding and administration of the Sabbath. The verse 5's claim shows that he has personal divine authority. Moving on into verse 6. As on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. Now, no longer can we give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. All right? And no longer give him, give them the benefit of the doubt. Jesus knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save life or to destroy it? What's funny here is that we're on a different Sabbath, another. So we're on a different Sabbath. And the Pharisees are looking for Jesus to heal. Why? Because it's work. Not allowed to work on a Sabbath. And so knowing their thoughts, he, he calls forth this paralyzed man who, Jewish tradition says that this man was a laborer with his hands. And so if his hand is crippled, like if he got smashed by a rock or something, he loses his livelihood. So if he's in the, the Sabbath with a crippled hand, we want to see if this man's livelihood is going to be restored. Because the key here is that on the Sabbath, if somebody was dying, you're allowed to work to save them. Why? Because human life trumps the Sabbath. But if they weren't dying, basically it is walk it off and wait till tomorrow. Um, healing could happen on Sunday. Sabbath is Saturday for them. Healing could happen on Sunday. It could happen on Monday. You can wait. It's not going to threaten your life. Now, what Jesus does is change that contrast. 
He changes the contrast. He says, I ask you, is it lawful? Because just like earlier in our first example, the Pharisees are concerned about the law. This is a legal matter. So if you want to make it a legal matter, Jesus is like, all right, is it lawful then on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? Well, I'm not going to say evil, so I guess I have to say good. I have to do good on the Sabbath, right? Makes sense. All right, then we get into the question of the specific law, to save life or to destroy it. What Jesus is doing here is taking this man who's not dying in the moment and setting up a parallel to life and death. Taking something that before would be postponed simply because it could, he's now saying, no, it is either evil or good. It is either saving a life or destroying it. And so by doing that type of parallel, Jesus is letting us know that the day of rest is for us. We're not for the day of rest. So on the day of rest, if somebody comes in and can't have a livelihood, why can't we work to heal the man so that he can have his livelihood restored and thus save a life going forward? Maybe not in the moment, but going forward, his life has now been given back to him. And so the Pharisees are all up in arms about Jesus working on the Sabbath. Now Jesus has a sense of humor. If you think Jesus is almighty, smighty God... You're missing a lot of different pictures of who Jesus is. So the work that the Pharisees were concerned about was that there was going to be physical labor happening. I mean, you guys work to set this up and tear it down. That's work, right? On your Sabbath. Good job, sinners. Um, that's work. Here Jesus, with his sense of humor, does this. All right, watch me. Watch me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act this out for you. This is work. You ready? Robbie, let me see your crippled hand. Stretch it out. Oh, man, that was exhausting. Whew. Right, I mean, Jesus is, is dealing with them here, and they're like, don't work on the Sabbath, Jesus. One, two, three, four words. Is that okay? Can I just stretch out your, your hand? Whew. I mean, everything that they're wrapped up about, and Jesus just does with his words. He just does it with his words. He did so, and his hand was restored. And as if Jesus was making fun of them, um, they are, however, incensed and filled with rage and start discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. We're in chapter 6, and they're already trying to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. It is an ominous verse as we go forward. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with these examples of the Sabbath? You know, in the same realm that I was talking about those questions of, of Jesus and, and religion on Facebook, I mean, the key is that for them, who is Jesus? Jesus is just an example. And you guys have all heard that, right? Jesus is an example that we should follow. Uh, the Muslims in, in Islam would say that Jesus was a good prophet. Uh, he was just a good man. But what do, we, what do we do with that? I mean, yes, Jesus is a good example. And like I said at some, I don't remember which Bible studies, um, at the Bible studies, Jesus is an example because he's earning our righteousness. He has to follow the law perfectly for us. So, yeah, that's an example to everyone of how to follow the law, but the law is not the key. While Jesus is absolutely a great example for us, he's also utterly unique. He's the only one that can do that. I'm not going to do a lot of good if I'm modeling every aspect of my life after Jesus. 
It's like me going home today with Jess. We're driving home. I go, honey, guess what? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> what does that do? I, I just modeled Jesus. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Cool? So is Robbie. He's telling Kristen on the way home. So is Kevin. He's telling Cassie on the way home. We're all Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah. It, it can't just be modeling. Obviously, we can't model everything that Jesus did. We're not all going to die on a cross. But what does he tell us to do with the cross? To pick up your cross and follow him. To die daily. Obviously, not physically. It's not just about following him. And, and if you think that it's just about following Jesus as a good example, then the largest religion of the world, you don't understand it can't just be about Jesus as an example. Example is secondary. It's secondary to the primary goal of Jesus to take sin upon himself on the cross, become an atonement, and because of that, we then have to respond to that claim. There's nothing for us to do to respond to the law. The example of him obeying the law, there's nothing for us to respond to there. All the law does is point out that we're sinners. And so there's nothing for us to do in responding to the example of Christ with the law. The only thing that we have to respond to is the fact that he lived a perfect life following the law as an example and to earn it, but then died a substitutionary uh, atonement, a death on the cross to pay the sins for us, rose again, and now stands as Lord. We have to respond to that. That demands some sort of response. So the point of religion for us then is Jesus. If Jesus claims to be Lord of the religion, so who is Jesus? I, he is Lord of religion. Okay, then what is religion? How does that fit in with us? What does Jesus tell us to do regarding religion? He tells us to get to know him. He tells us to get to know him. In these first 11 verses, Jesus takes religion and places it on himself. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And by establishing religion on him, we need to know him better, understand him more carefully, that leads to a better relationship with him. That lets us have access to the benefits and the blessings of relationship with him are much more experienced. Richard Sibbs preached one time, said, Heaven is not heaven without Christ. To be with Christ is to be at home. This is our Sabbath rest. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. As we talked about in Kingdom, Gospel and Kingdom, the point of creation is rest. The whole goal of creation is rest. And by finding our day of rest in the man, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, we find rest in him. He is Lord of the religion. The second thing, Jesus claims to be Lord of their ambitions. Jesus claimed to be Lord of their ambitions. Verse 12 through 26. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them. He also named them apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, you also see him called Jude. 
in order to establish a difference between him and then Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 17, after coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and came from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out of him and healing them all. Then, looking up at his disciples, he said, You who are poor are blessed, because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are hungry now are blessed, because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed, because you will laugh. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Jesus claimed to be Lord of their ambitions. So we start this section, having left all of the stories about the Sabbath. It says, during those days, so sort of following, I mean, he's not precisely chronological. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. How many of you have ever done that before? Not maybe on a mountain, but anywhere. All night in prayer. Anybody? Longer than an hour in prayer? Just a couple people? Yeah. Um, just try to keep track of how many times you see Jesus praying in Luke. That's so much. <laughs> um, I don't know. Some things like this are obviously incredibly encouraging to see the relationship that we can have with the Father, as Jesus shows us. But at the same time, it's akin to like John Piper last year at T4G, the conference that we went to, gets up in front of like 10,000 pastors. Okay, we all like worship this man, right? We repent every time, but we, we worship John Piper, right? And he gets up there in his little Yoda hermit way and says, I am amazed after like 78 years that I am still a Christian. And 10,000 pastors closed their Bibles, put them down on the chair, and just walked out. I mean, it was, it was crazy, insane. No, but that's what we all felt like. To have a man like that, a man, all right, mind you, that says, I'm amazed that I am still a Christian, is scary. He's written, he's written countless books. He spoke at numerous conferences. He has a pastor's school. There's an enormously large church that's planting churches. And he's amazed that he's still a follower of Christ. And I don't spend time in prayer. What hope is there for me? We have to take this one verse of prayer and not skip over it. It has so many implications for our life as Christians. I just talked about what we should, about the example of Christ. This is one of those times where you can follow the example, right? Now, this isn't magical. 
If you're not earnestly praying and seeking God, it's going to be a waste of night. But he's praying all night to do what? His next action is to choose 12 men. His next action is to choose 12 men. Jesus spent all night in prayer before choosing the disciples. So then the question for us as the church is how much should we pray before choosing pastors and elders? If these disciples are representatives for Jesus, if I am a shepherd of the flock, what kind of prayer should we put into in choosing new pastors and elders? What type of prayer should we put in for praying for our current pastors and elders? It takes a lot of thought to put somebody, a man, in these type of positions. And Jesus chooses 12, 12 ordinary men. What they're supposed to do after being called these specific disciples, you could refer to the whole crowd that is actually following Jesus as disciples. But his particular disciples, these 12 that he chooses, have a special role to play. What you're trying to do with a, a Jewish rabbi at the time is, is to follow them. And uh, Robbie was reminding me of this before. Um, I told you before that they would say, let the dust of your rabbi be on your cloak. Now, what that means is you're following them so closely that the dust that they kick up while they walk gets on you. If you're farther back, then you're not hearing the teaching. So you're supposed to follow your rabbi so closely that the dust would be on your cloak. And what's going on is it's not just that they want to learn. It's not like we would go to university to those teachers as Jesus was called, and, and just learn facts. What they're doing is learning a, a worldview. They're learning what God has revealed to them in Judaism. And so the goal is to follow them in such a way, not just to learn facts, but to, to see the teacher live it out, to see the teacher embody the teaching that they're giving. And so as we follow Matt and, and myself, you should see the teaching that we have lived out in our lives, embodied in what we do. If the things that I preach I don't put into practice or I don't at least repent and continue to try to put them into practice when I fail, it's not a teacher that you should follow. So what I'm not saying is that you should go to a right state and sit under those teachers and even if they embody it or not, do everything that they say. That is a fact-learning issue. We're talking about worldview issue stuff. So when we're teaching, if we're not living it out and embodying it, then we're not good teachers. Calvin talks about the quality of who he picks. He says that it was to the unmixed grace of Christ and not to any excellence of their own that they were indebted for receiving so honorable an office. So it was purely grace. They certainly did not deserve the office that they were receiving. For if you understand him to say, that those were chosen who were more excellent than others, this certainly would not apply to Judas. If the disciples that were chosen were chose based on merit, or even amongst the qualities against each other, you can't say that, because Judas would not have been chosen. So the meaning, therefore, must be that the apostleship was not bestowed on account of any human merits, but by the free mercy of God. Persons who were altogether unworthy of it were raised to that high rank. And thus was fulfilled what Christ says on another occasion in John 15, 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. 
These people weren't elected disciples. They were not appointed disciples by anybody other than Christ. It happened after a night full of prayer. Now, the question that's probably running through your mind is it was mine when I first read this. How many of you guys did your renovate us by doing verse by verse and writing a question? Yeah, hands, a couple. All right. Um, I'm assuming, good job, Brian. I see your hand this week. All right. Um, you're in the dark back there. So white. Um, when I got here, I was like, why did you pick Judas Jesus? Probably a good question to ask. I think for us, it's a good warning. Uh, it's a warning to us that even if we are selected by Christ in, like, presently, all right, but Christ called me to eldership, all right, so I was picked by Jesus. Even if he were, like, physically standing there and chose me, this is a warning to me that I'm not immune in any way to such horrible treachery as Judas did. A simple role that we have, the simple office that we are appointed to, in no way protects us from any amount of treachery uh, or treason or um, in, in, in any way. It's a good warning to us. Uh, this follows in any position of leadership. If you're appointed as a deacon, you're still vulnerable. If you're a, a husband and a family, you're still vulnerable. Why would you pick Judas? It's not that Jesus messed up. It's not that God didn't tell him after 12 hours of prayer who to pick. He was selected for a divine purpose. One that, of course, we know later down in the story. But even just looking here. Now, a good thing to remember if we're following a narrative is to understand that while Luke jumps ahead and calls them apostles, which no other um, gospel writer does because he's thinking of Acts as he's writing. He goes, hey, I know these guys become apostles. Um, so he tells us now. But while he jumps ahead and calls them apostles, when these guys are picked, when Peter's picked, and Jesus is like choosing his basketball team and picks Judas, he doesn't go, oh man, don't you know about him? They didn't know at the time. Jesus certainly did, but they didn't know. So all of that, let's, let's move into, into the, the sermon. So I said last week there was no sermon on the Mount in Luke, and I maintain that. Um, this is the sermon on the plain, all right? Luke and Matthew have two different accounts for this sermon. Uh, this happens on a level place. But it is the same teaching. So, if we look at that then, we jump into uh, verse, what, 20. It says, Then looking up at his disciples, he said, You who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed because you will laugh. You who are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So, what do we do with this sermon? All right, well. If you're coming to God for healing, if you're coming to God for cleansing of demonic possession, or not possessions, uh, yeah, you're possessed by demonic forces, as they were doing in verse 19, the whole crowd was coming to him, and power was pouring out of God. If you come to him for that because he's God, you have to do something because he's God. One comes to God not just to receive from him, but to respond to him. You can't just come to him and receive all of his good without responding to him in some way. And he's going to outline that here. So we see four different examples. Poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. Then we see four woes. To the rich, to the well-fed, to the laughing, to the popular. And so the woes answer the blessings. 
And what's interesting for us is that it turns our normal ambitions upside down. So if you just look at a list like I have here, I have two bullet points. One says poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. That sounds like it sucks. Don't want that bullet point. Next bullet point, rich, well-fed, laughing, and popular. That sounds awesome. I'm all over that. Now, without any context and without any instruction, which bullet point are any human on the planet going to pick? Two. Thank you. Good participation. All right. All right. Yes, we're going to pick two. Duh. And so Jesus takes our normal ambitions and turns them upside down, but it's not without instruction. He doesn't just say to us, go be poor, go be hungry, go weep, go be hated. He tells us why, what's, what's going to happen with that. Now, before we get into too much more of that, I want to take a moment and just explain one of these. So if we're talking about the poor, let's start with the poor. You who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. Christ is not teaching salvation through poverty. What he is trying to illustrate and show us, and what we can gain from this, is, is that poverty physically can bring about an understanding of spiritual poverty. So poverty of spirit may be brought about by earthly poverty. If we can understand in a physical sense of what it means to be poor, we can understand then and translate that from the physical, emotional, over to spiritual side, and say, I know what it feels like to be emotionally and physically poor, what would it be like to be spiritually poor? And it's not spiritually poor as in the relationship that you have is not worth something. It's spiritually poor in an understanding that we are lacking. We need to be humble and understand that God has to meet us. He has to do something for us. So if you are poor, you are without means to help yourself. If we're going to be spiritually poor, then we find that we are without means to help ourselves. Who can help us? But if you're rich, you are with means to help yourself. That translates into an emotional category. I know what it feels like to be secure spiritually. You're not going to see that need. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what he's trying to do. It's not salvation through poverty. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you should be proud of your poverty. So what do we do with that then? All right, so in verse 22, we jump way down. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. What happened in verse 11? They're looking for ways to come after Jesus. It's going to happen to his followers. Christ is preparing them for the trials to come. He's reorienting their ambitions. Now, if you look at these, the language changes between the first, the second, and third, and then the fourth one on both the blessings and the curse or the woes. If you look at the first blessing, you who are poor, that's a current thing, are blessed, right? Current thing. You're currently blessed. Because what? The kingdom of God is currently yours. 21, you who are now current, hungry, are blessed. Current, right? So no change yet. Because you will, future, be filled. The same thing happens in the third one. You who are now weep are blessed because you will in the future. Laugh. And then four, you are blessed whenever this happens, when, whenever this happens, people hate you 
whenever this happens, they exclude you, whenever this happens, insult you, whenever they slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It goes back to Corinth, right? Whenever it happens, you will then be blessed. Why? Because of the Son of Man. And so what should you do? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note. Your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Last bit of note on this actual back to Jesus, and we'll get to some application. The way their ancestors used to treat, used to treat the prophets, jump down to 26. The way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. One more dichotomy. So what happens? If you're doing these things, you either will experience it now, or you have the promise of it in the future. You either have it now, so obviously it's worth enjoying because you have it. Or you will have it in the future and you can look forward with hope so that you can get through the immediate. Those are your two categories that he gives us. So Jesus doesn't just tell us to be poor, weep, hungry, and hated with nothing to show for it. He tells us how to do it and what we will gain. Now, from there, he ends each section with the prophets or the false prophets. If we're going to do this, we have to do it in such a way that the prophets were hated. Why were the prophets in the Old Testament hated? Because they lived what they were supposed to out. You're not going to be hated, Christian in the room, trust me, you are not going to be hated if you don't live out your faith. No one's going to have a bone to pick with you. But if you live out your faith, you're going to find confrontation. You're going to find people that won't like you. You're going to find people who think that you should just go away and for a long time. Now, if you're acting like that, then you're acting like the prophets. But it won't happen to you if you're not acting like the prophets. Verse 26, the way that they treated the false prophets. Listen to this one. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. One of the qualifications for an elder is to be uh, generally well thought of by outsiders. Now, where does that find a balance with this? <laughs> People cannot bring a charge of sin against me that are outside of the body because there are none for them to see. That's being thought of well of by outsiders. But if I am giving in to outsiders and they think well of me because of that, on my faith, on my principles, then it's woe to me. Then it's woe to me. Because that's the way that they used to treat the false prophets. They were well liked because they caved. They put up the Asherah. Poles. They worshipped Baal, and they were well thought of because they didn't start any problems. So woes are an expression of regret and compassion for the deadly threats facing Christians, his disciples that he's talking about. And so Jesus calls his followers to take up the cross against the pleasures of idols and worldly success that take our focus off of God and cause us to protect ourselves rather than to give ourselves away as we are taught. The right joy will lead us to the cross, while the wrong ones will lead us away. The danger is that we will look at the two bullet points, and we will see rich, well-fed, laughing, and popular. And we will jump on that, and it will distract us. And those pleasures will lead to destruction. And Jesus is protecting us from that. You see, the world and our culture is going to want us in their 20s seeking fun. In college, you have fun. In their 30s, they want to be popular. As they're growing and they have kids... In their 40s, they're going to be in, well into their careers and are amassing wealth. In their 50s, they'll have their pick of choice food and entertainment and enjoy the fruits of their labors. And in the 60s and 70s, they'll have the best stories to tell because they sought fun, were popular, 
had all the food and entertainment. And that is a tragically wasted life. Piper, in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, has a few thoughts. Well, many good ones, but a few that I'm going to read. The really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but it's self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. He goes on and says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. And I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call Earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. And using my money just the way that unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. He closes out by saying, Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort and every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. And so non-Christians, if you're not a believer here today, learn from Jesus. Learn from Jesus the vanishing nature of wealth, food, entertainment, and popularity. The pursuit of those will certainly lead to a wasted life. You were made to experience God who has forgiven your sins to Jesus on the cross. You may not agree with everything that we stand for as Christians, but Jesus is giving you a warning. And it goes against what we would assume would be right. Christians, believers in the room, see these as a checklist of, belief, of prayer, as a checklist of prayer for the things that you wrongly fear and admit the idolatry of wrong ambitions held in your heart. Take these things and pray through them. If you fear being poor, if you fear being hungry or weeping or being hated, you need to repent of that and find comfort in the promise and the hope that Jesus attaches to those commands. And when you find yourself with wrong ambitions and the woes, when you hold them in your heart, repent of those. And so your last point on there, may we as a church be characterized as a church of Christ-like ambitions. Jesus claims to be the Lord of our ambitions. That's two. <laughs> the third one, Jesus claimed to be Lord of their ethics, 27 through 42. It says, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from one who takes your things, don't ask them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. 
If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them in parable, Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we see religion being established on God. We see our ethics being overturned by God. And finally, we see um, our ethics overturned by God. We have a strikingly different ethic given to us right here than we experienced this past week in your jobs, in your home, and than, than you would at school. People don't act like this. They just don't. And so we find here that Jesus goes after the root of our personal motives and our actions. He's going after the root of who we are by looking at our worldview before and now hammering home on our ethics. Why do we do what we do? If you can't answer that question, you need to dig. Why do you do what you do? And so speaking specifically to love, how should we handle people, loving your enemies, what should we do? Calvin says this, he says, to restrain his disciples from that kind of adult indulgence, speaking to revenge. He forbids them to render evil for evil. He afterward extends the law of patience so far that we are not only to bear patiently the injuries we have received, but to prepare for bearing fresh injuries. The amount of the whole admonition is this, that believers hold, uh, hold learn, I'm sorry, I type while I'm reading, the believers learn to forget the wrongs <laughs> that have been done them. But they should not, when injured, break out into hatred or ill will or wish to commit an injury on their part. But that the more the obstinacy and rage of the wicked man was excited and inflamed, they should be more fully disposed to exercise patience. This doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves. That's not what he's going after. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. We can defend ourselves. His point here is that when somebody who we know is evil is going to come to us and hurt us, expect that. And expect it again. This is character. This is ethics. This is the root of who we are. They will do it again. Be ready for it. And don't respond back in any way. In fact, be so patient that knowing they're going to come back and do it again, you're even still patient. That seems kind of easy to do when you're just kind of thinking about outsiders, right? Guy's going to call me a name again. I'm ready for it. What does this look like in your marriage? What does this look like in your marriage? 
In verse 35, he says, For he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. If you skipped over that, that's, that's you. That's me. Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, children of wrath, enemies of God, hateful towards God. We're the ungrateful. <laughs> We're the evil, and God was gracious to us. And so be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. We need to understand that we are ungrateful and evil, and we will act in such a way to those who are lost, to those who are saved, and to our spouses. And when that happens, we need to be patient back to them. And knowing that they're going to do it again, continue to be patient. Love cannot be based on how much they deserve it. That's how sinners operate. That's how the outside world operates. It has to be based on the nature of God's love. You know, for Jesus, it's regardless of the worthiness of the object. How worthy are we to experience anything that God gives us? Anything. So in our families, we have to love our spouses based on their position, not their performance. To the outside world, our love must be distinct. Our love must be distinct. If your love is different than those around you, you're doing well. But the question must be, is your love different? Is it any different than those outside these four walls? Is it in any way distinct from this world? That's coming on Tuesday and Wednesday, so be ready. <laughs> we need to think through these. How is our love distinct? Yes, we love and we love well, but how is it distinct? What makes it different? What makes a Christian wedding ceremony different than a secular wedding ceremony? Our love has to be distinct. And if our love is distinct, then it's going to change the way that we judge. If we're going to look at judging, then judging can't be hypocritical or merciless. It has to be loving. We have to try to make a practice. Uh, it would be much more successful if we did this. If we made a practice of talking about our own faults, then judging will almost cease to exist. Now, you can't go up and say, yeah, I suck at that too. Um, directly implying that they're terrible at something doesn't work, even if you can join them. All right? We have to be loving in our judging. And, and a good model for this is church discipline. This is why we practice church discipline. If you have a problem with a brother, you are required by Scripture to go and talk to that brother. If you catch a brother in sin, you are required to go talk to them about their sin. If they do not respond, then you take a second because you love them. If they do not repent and respond, you take a third of the church and the elders. And eventually, we have to no longer call them brother if they maintain to call themselves Christians and will not repent of sin. But the purpose is not to just get rid of everybody. The purpose is to remain pure. The purpose is to love these people, to save them from the sin that will destroy them, to save them from their ambitions that will destroy them and waste their life. Our love must be distinct. Finally, Jesus claims to be Lord of their actions. Claims to be Lord of their actions. He claims to be Lord of their religion, which would affect worldview. Then ambitions, which is going to affect particularly what I would like to do. Finally, ethics, which is going to determine how I respond to people. And ultimately, we end with actions. What actually happens in my life? What do I end up doing? And 43 through 49, it's very short. It gives two examples. First one is of fruit, and the second one is of a flood. He says a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. 
For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me. Here's my words and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately collapsed. And the destruction of that house was great. And so the danger of you even showing up here today, whether I'm a fantastic preacher or the worst in the world, you've heard God's word. And if you don't take it and do something with it today, you are like the second person. To come and hear God's word, even if I were to preach it wrongly, and not do anything with it, would be like building your house on sand. But if you have a solid foundation, you take the words that we preach, the application that we give when we're preaching correctly, and apply that to your life, you are the strong house. Now, having the word of God also gives us a fact that we have to have fruit. Because whether you know it or not, somebody's watching your life. Your life is being watched, and you need to be aware of that. In fact, you're not just being watched, you're being studied. If you have kids, you're being studied. You're a grandpa, you're being studied. Never fear. Right? We're being studied. Some more than others. But we're being watched. And if our fruit doesn't match who we say we are, then we're lying. You can't be an orange tree and produce bananas. It doesn't happen. So what does it mean for us? The question is, does your life bear out the truth of what you claim? We have to live lives that show the reality of what we believe. A good way to do this would be to look at your fruit. If I'm Mr. Orange Tree, I've got a little happy smiley face on the trunk there, and I want to see what kind of tree I am because I just look like I'm brown and green. All I have to do is look to the side, and I see an orange. Holy crap, I'm an orange tree. I better then claim to be an orange tree. I can't see an orange and be like, oh, I'm an apple tree. It's Halloween, I guess. Paint them all red or something. It doesn't work that way. So look at your fruit and know what kind of tree you are. A good way to do this, Galatians 5. Write this down. There's a song for this. I'm not going to sing it because I'm terrible at singing and we have no time. Um, verse 16, Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So, bad fruit. This is the bad fruit. You see this in your life. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Did I skip that one? And things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So if you look to the right and you see those things hanging on your tree, you have a good idea of what kind of tree you are. And you can't, you can't blame it on anything else. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of what's in that trunk will come out on those leaves. But the fruit of the Spirit, if you see these things, you see these things in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the only way to get this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh with its passions and desires, and if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if you find yourself being a hypocrite, do something about it. Otherwise you'll be destroyed. Jesus says that he will prune those trees and they will be thrown in the fire. Don't shrink back from the discipline of self-examination. You have to take time. It's not fun. It hurts. But understand that it's grace in your life that's being put into you to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The only way to change that fruit is to change who you are. So you die to yourself. You become a new creation. Now you can bear the fruit of the Spirit. The key verse, I think, here is verse 45. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's so easy to tell who people really are. It really is. If you couldn't figure this out in high school, even as adults, it still works. Listen to how people talk. Listen to how you talk. You can lie through your teeth to me all day, but I can listen to the way you talk, and I can tell who you are. I think you can do the same to me. We have to watch what we say, how we say it. What are we trying to accomplish? Who are we about? Because out of the overflow of the storeroom of our heart comes out life or death. And so the key here, as we find in verse 46, is it's not enough to call him Lord, but to recognize him as Lord. To recognize him as Lord necessarily means that he's to be obeyed. If we're not obeying God, then we are missing the whole boat. And so what is his concern? It's that we'll stand. We listen to him so that we can stand. We listen to him so that our house may be built on a solid foundation. Where does that come from? Ephesians 6. Write this one down. The armor of God. Count how many times you see the word stand. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, because of all of that, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Withstand in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We have to stand. We talk about perseverance of the saints, it's because we can fall away. It's because we can be washed away. If our foundation was never on the rock in the first place, then we will not stand. Real faith is always accompanied by the fruits of the Spirit. If you want to know whether or not you're saved, look at your fruit. Look at John. John gives us tons of examples of how we can know that we are saved. But the easiest way is to look at our fruit. If our roots go deep into the solid foundation that is Christ, we will, through the power of the Spirit, produce good fruit. 
Again, this is why we practice church discipline. Bro, there's a banana on your tree. shouldn't be. You're an orange tree, man. What's up? What are you trying to be? You're trying to be something that you're not. We're clear on our teaching of repentance so that we can get rid of those wrong fruits. So we practice church discipline and membership so that we can do it in a loving way and practice purity. And so if our temporary disapproval of your actions causes you to repent and avoid the judgment of God, then we are serving you well and at some cost to ourselves because you won't be happy with us or with each other or whoever is holding you accountable. You probably won't be happy with them in the moment. And it's that cost to them. They're risking relationship. They're risking comfort. They're risking a lot of time to call you out on your sin. Be thankful for that. <laughs> if you're temporarily upset with the way that they hold you accountable, it's for your good. If you're temporarily upset with the way that Matt or I hold you accountable, it's for your good. We just love you. We want to see good things happen for you. So finally, our religion and ambitions, our ethics, our actions are all centered on the hope in another life. This belief is based on Jesus. He was unique among all others in that he taught, lived, and died, and was raised from the dead. We have hope. Why do we have hope? Because Jesus came back. He didn't just pay for our sins, but he was raised again in the resurrection. The resurrection is so foundational to our future hope. He's the firstborn of all creation, and he's the first raised in the second life. And so as you look through the blessings and the woes, look at the ones that are to come. He didn't just tell us what to do. He told us how and what we'll get. We find our hope in our religion and our ambitions, our ethics, and our actions, all in what he says will come for us, and we can see the truth in what he has done. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord of everything. What does religion have to do with that? He is religion. We know him better. We know Jesus. And that changes who we are, not in what we do, but foundationally. We are different people. Now you have an answer. The question is, are we living it? Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, uh, Father, for how you reveal us yourself to us. And Father, as we try to tear through so much scripture in one day, uh, Father, I ask that you um, imprint on our hearts, Father, what you would have us do. Father, the things that we have to skip because of time, um, as it is, Father, the things that we have to um, try to focus on by just getting at the meaning of the text in the first place and trying to understand what you would have us to do. Father, I ask that you bring it into our hearts every day this week. Father, that we would reflect on what you have to uh, have us to do, Father, as you planned our steps. God, that we take your word having listened to it, and Father, that we respond to it, that we don't just sit there having seen our face turn away and forget what we look like, but God, that you reveal yourself, your word, and your direction for us. And we take that, and we reflect, as painful as it may be. God, we know that you are gracious, you are merciful. Father, you are kind and gentle, and you will lead us in the way that we should go. We love you, and we thank you for all you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.